and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. I'm your host, Bill Yasser Shabazz, and I'm dedicated to preserving the legacies of Malcolm X, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and countless others upon whose shoulders we all stand today. At The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith, we aim to empower our listeners with dignity and self-respect as we've taken an oath to empower at least one child. This show is co-produced by acclaimed educator and author, Ms. Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white. Here, we salute those committed to preserving a rich history through literature, the arts, the skill trades, and the humanities. So come on and gather your family, friends, and students to listen online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. We thank you for joining us this evening, and we'd love for you to be a part of our discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. That's 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening, standing in for Elisa Shabazz. Here on the Gist of Freedom. And uh, we're coming to you over www.blockradio.com backslash the Gist of Freedom. Also, like to remind you that these programs are archived and available via iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm coming to you from the Midwest. We have a full moon here, and I hope it's full where you are on this pre-Valentine's Day program. And my guest tonight is author Betty DeRamus. She's a Detroiter. She's the author of two nonfiction books about the Underground Railroad. One is called Forbidden Freedom. Uh, hello? Hello. Oh, is that Betty? Yes, this is me. It's Forbidden Fruit. Forbidden Fruit, Love Stories from the Underground Railroad. And the second book is uh, Freedom by Any Means. Those are the two books uh, relative to the Underground Railroad. I understand you're also currently writing a biography. Uh, Well, actually, I'm I'm currently working on two books. I was told we were talking about freedom, uh, about forbidden fruit tonight. Am I wrong? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Okay. They didn't know you were on the line, and I was going to do an introduction, uh, but here we go. And um, in reference to that book, uh, Forbidden Fruit, why was that particular title chosen, and what does it have in, in uh, common with the context of the book? Ah, that's an interesting question. Uh, why did I call the book Forbidden Fruit? Yeah. Uh, I'll give you two answers. Okay. Uh, the, first, the first answer is that a lot of people are not really drawn to history books. They think of them as being dull and dry and, you know, dusty and full of dates, which was pretty much how I thought way, way, way back when I was a freshman in college. It was It was my least favorite subject. Uh, so I didn't want to give it a, one of those stodgy, traditional kinds of names. I wanted to give it a name that would make people stop and, you know, look at it again, 
I wanted a name that people wouldn't just walk past. Uh, okay. But in the, in the context of the book, which is about uh, enslaved couples and a few interracial couples who did extraordinary things to remain together, to avoid being separated, uh, for them, forbidden fruit uh, has a more specific meaning. It means a lasting relationship. That was the thing that enslaved people were not allowed to have. Ah, oh, I see. Yeah. See what I'm saying? So, so that was that was the apple they couldn't bite. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For them to be married legally. Yes. Yeah. Have you? So, what inspired you to write this book? How did you come up on this subject? Well, first, first of all. You know, I was a newspaper columnist and a reporter and, uh, you know, involved in a lot of different aspects of uh, communications. And like most of us, every February, I was looking for something special, not just February, but February in addition to other parts of the year. But I never wanted to do the traditional uh, kinds of stories that people did. I was always looking for something no one else had written about. I was always looking for something fresh. Like one year I came across a story about, um, well, everybody knows about the Tuskegee Airmen, but there was actually a black man named Calvin Clark Davis from northern Michigan who was passing for white or taken for white when he applied to the Air Force, and so they allowed him to in, to enroll. So he actually beat the Tuskegee Airmen uh, by a couple months in terms of being the first black pilot. I mean, he, you know, in America, it takes one drop. So he was African-American, and he was enrolled in the Air Force. He was a pilot before um, the Tuskegee Airmen, things like that. And so I came across a story, oh, quite a few years ago, that inspired me to write Forbidden Fruit. It began with um, a tale about an interracial couple. Now, let me make it clear. Most most of the people in my um, in Forbidden Fruit are African Americans. There are enslaved people, sometimes two enslaved people, sometimes an enslaved person with a free mate. But there were also a few, maybe more than a few, if you examine Canadian uh, marriage records and what have you, who who also wanted to be together during the during the slavery era. They wanted to be man and wife. Uh, in some cases, they did not run away together because that would have called, you know, called too much attention to them. But they, um, you know, were, were able to also escape. Isaac and Lucy Berry. Uh, Lucy was a white girl in Missouri. Isaac was an enslaved man on a, on a nearby farm. They ran away separately, but they had a plan where they would end up uh, meeting each other in Windsor. Windsor, Canada. So when I came across that story, it kind of stunned me. I'm like, what? <laughs> I never knew anything like this was, was going on. And um, these people, they had descendants who were still living. As you mentioned, I'm from Detroit, and uh, in, in the central part of the state, uh, which is a rural area, they still had uh, grandchildren who were alive, if you can believe that, in 2002. I believe when I went up there, and um, I went and talked to them. I interviewed. Uh, they didn't know Isaac, the their their grandfather, but they knew 
They knew Lucy. They, you know, when they were five or six years old, they remembered walking through the woods with her and her telling them the story of how she ran away from home to be with the man she loved. Bobby Dar. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like living, living history was just deposited in my lap. And I didn't know what to what to do with it. I ended up writing a series for the Detroit News, which is where I was working at the time. I was a columnist. But still, I, once once I got on the track of that one story, I began coming across coming across others uh, involving black people who who did extraordinary things as well, who found each other. Uh, James, a man known as James Smith, spent 17 years searching for his wife Fanny before finally find, finding her in uh, in Canada. Uh, just just one story after another of extraordinary effort uh, being, okay. you know, and you mentioned, you mentioned James and Fanny. Yeah. Could you go into a little bit more detail about those two? Yeah, James and Fanny. I first came across that story in a newspaper called The Voice of the Fugitive. It was an anti-slavery newspaper. Uh, published by Henry Bibb. He was a noted abolitionist and a runaway enslaved man. He he ran away from Kentucky and ended up in Canada. Anyway, uh, he interviewed James Smith, and he ran that story in five installments in the voice of the fugitive. And that was the first time I had ever heard that story, and I hadn't never heard it anywhere else again. And uh, it just stunned me. Uh, it, it was a story of a man who became a, a, a minister among, amongst the slaves. He considered himself and he preached, and it was something his master didn't want him to do. And it may sound strange, like why would he care whether or not this enslaved man was preaching? But some some slave owners didn't want their slaves to get religion just as they didn't want them to be able to read and write. Because all these things, uh, the thinking was these things empowered people. It gave black people a sense of power, you know, uh, something they could draw inspiration from, like the Hebrews' quest for freedom. They didn't. They didn't want all these kinds of ideas to, um, <laughs> you know, to infiltrate the enslaved population. James Smith was beaten innumerable, innumerable times because he kept prof- professing Christianity, and he did it loudly. He didn't do it quietly. He he would actually preach after his um, day's labor was over. And so to punish him for embracing Christianity and, and, and preaching, he was separated from his family. After being beaten numerous times, that didn't work. He was just sold away from his family. And... Uh, he went through a lot of adventures, and eventually he, um, after, like I said, after about 17 years of searching, he came. He he finally located her. If you don't mind, I'd like to read the first two paragraphs of that story. Is that okay? okay. It's sure. called. Yeah, the chapter is called "A Love Worth Waiting For." The woman's face looked as familiar as a burlap sack waiting for someone to stuff its mouth with Georgia Cotton. Oh, yes, sweet Jesus, James Smith knew that face. 
The woman's face seemed as much a part of James Smith's past as a taste of hoe cakes snatched from ashes and the high tenor saxophone wail of hounds. The woman's face might have seemed as familiar as that jail cell in Richmond where a branding iron had seared James Smith's face and neck, his skin hissing and sputtering like salt flung on flames, and then surrendering, Lord God, to the pain. And it talks about their reunion. Neither of them can, can hardly believe uh, you know, that they have found each other after after all that time and all the misadventures um, that they went through. So, well, how did they, were they on the same plantation? Uh, in the beginning, yes. They were in the same area, yes. And, but he was, she was sold away from him, and then he was taken to another uh, uh, state. So it was just, like you said, it was serendipity, although everywhere he went, he would ask about her and he would tell where he was from and who his owner had been. I mean, the Underground Railroad was not just physical movement of people or hiding people or transporting people. It was a transfer of information. And people had many ways of doing that. They would get people to write letters for them. They would uh, advertise for people in, in secret journals and what have you or letters. So it took him a long time, but he... Eventually, somebody heard his story and said, I think I've met somebody like that who talked about this coming from the same place. But he still had no guarantee it was her, but it turned out it was. And you mentioned that uh, James was a, a preacher and a fiery preacher at that, um, somewhat of a rebel preacher. Uh, do you go in to explain uh, or compare him with the likes of a Nat Turner? Or how did he compare to Nat Turner? Well, um, Nat Turner was was the reason people, some some slave owners were afraid uh, to bring slaves and religion together, because you know Nat Turner was a preacher, mm-hmm. claiming that claiming that he had been urged to do what he did as a result of biblical signs and omens. So he was not only a preacher; he was somebody who drew. Uh, the inspiration for being a rebel from the Bible. So after Nat's rebellion, all nighttime religious meetings were prohibited uh, in Virginia and elsewhere, uh, and no blacks, free or slaves, could hear colored preachers or ministers. They could only listen to white preachers, and only during the daytime. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I got you. And what do you think of folks uh, saying that the Bible was used to make slaves meet and bow down, et cetera? Well, uh, you could, I guess that's the that's the thing about the Bible, the, the wonderful thing, and for some people a perplexing thing, is that you can read a lot of different interpretations out of it, you know what I'm saying, depending yeah. on depending on who you are. Depending on what you bring to it, you can find what you need. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. In the yeah. in the Bible, or you can interpret things to to say what you what you believe they say. Especially if you're dealing with with uh, perhaps people who are who are not literate. So, but many slave owners did consider it dangerous uh, 
because of Nat Turner and because of some other things that had happened. So so when James Smith he he asked to join a church that w- that was quite a that was a large thing he was asking for. I'd like to ask uh, your re- uh, response on a couple of movies here recently, uh, Django being one and 12 Years a Slave. And some would say that 12 Years a Slave uh, really did not give the love story its due in that particular movie. Do you have any comments on that? Well, um, you know, I, neither of them is... It's revolutionary that we're having these movies at all, first of all. You, you know Amen. what I mean? Yeah, we waited a long time to have any realistic or, in, in the case of Django, uh, surrealistic <laughs> the, <laughs> the, depiction. You know, uh, I, obviously that was um, that was more of a fantasy Django than a reality, but there was there was some realism woven into it. And the fact that he was rescuing his wife was was the one thing that really struck home with me. That was the most realistic part of it, because I had I had read so many stories and researched so many stories about uh, people uh, doing that. Not just for one re- relative, but there were people who, after rescuing their wives and, and children or whatever, would come back. And uh, get a sister, come back, get a brother, come back. Each time they they would do it, you know, after they became familiar with the roots and whatever, each time they would be better at it, <laughs> you see, because they, they knew how to go. You know, they didn't they didn't make the same mistakes they'd made the, they'd made the first time. So that part of it rang true, and I was just, just so happy to, you know, to see that part of the black experience even being addressed. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't really expecting uh, total total reality or anything. I'm like, okay, they've opened the door now. Uh, maybe we can talk about that. Because previously, and when I was growing up, the only thing you heard about slavery was it, we were depicted solely as victims. There was no dignity in the depiction. It was, you know, you were beaten, you were this, you were that, and all of that happened. But some other things happen too, and so I, I, I think maybe now we're moving into an era where other kinds of stories can be told. You know, it, the story of slavery was not one story. When the Civil War ended, uh, or when emancipation came, there were an estimated four million enslaved people in the United States. What does that mean? That means there were four million stories. You know, not a single story was the same, uh, you know. So there's a lot of material. We, we Hollywood needs to play catch-up now. <laughs> there, yeah. there, you know what I'm saying? That we, we can count on, we can still count on one hand, <laughs> you know, uh, movies of this, with this subject matter. So speaking of the Underground Railroad, which was largely, um, often depicted as males being in the forefront. Yes. Uh, and what do you think about Harriet Tubman and her relationship to those men that well, were in the, the forefront? Well, first of, first of all, uh, I did not deal with any males escaping alone. These stories are all about people who, if they did escape alone, they came back and got their families, okay? 
uh, I'm not dealing with anybody who didn't look back. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm dealing with a woman named Lear Green who had herself uh, put inside a sailor's chest and, sh- and shipped from Baltimore to uh, Philadelphia and then traveling overland to reach her fiancé. I'm dealing with uh, a civil, uh, a Virginian uh, by the name of Samuel Balton, who ran away from slavery, joined the Union Army uh, to fight, and became, in the midst of war, so concerned about how was his family doing that he crept through enemy lines uh, just to see his wife and make sure she was doing all right, Uh, which, of course, he was risking his life. And on the way back, he was stopped by the the Confederates did stop him and probably would have killed him, which they had vowed to do to any black people that that they caught uh, who were aiding the enemy. But the the right words just came to his mouth, and he said them, and they reassured him because he pretended that he was he pretended that the Yankees had actually kidnapped him and that he was trying to get back to his good old master. So, of course, that placated them and they patted him on the head, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm not, I'm not, what you're talking about is is the stereotype that it was mostly single men and that they, you know, they went on about their business. But I've discovered a lot of people who defy that stereotype, not just running together or finding each other but coming back multiple times to uh to to do it over again uh another stereotype that that used to be fairly widely circulated was that most of the um on the underground railroad that most of the conductors uh were white and that is that is a long way from the truth um I don't deal with Harriet Tubman or anybody that you've heard of because everybody, you know, not not saying I don't know anything about her. In fact, I know some of her I know some of her descendants. But I'm saying that was the exact opposite of what I was trying to do. Everybody talks about Harriet Tubman, everybody talks about Frederick Douglass, everybody talks about Sojourner Truth. Uh you know, I just did a piece that ran in the uh, Los Angeles Times uh, Tuesday about how uh, Black History Month has gotten to be uh, like a golden oldie station, always playing the same tunes, and the tunes are terrific. But but we need we need some we need some fresh material, you know. And so I was, you know, my emphasis was on the on the people you don't know. Joseph Antoine, who was born in Cuba and as a slave, was freed and then went to Virginia to live. Why he came to Virginia, we don't know. And uh, But he was in love with a woman that he considered his wife, and uh, as a result of uh, being caught up in a deal with her owner, he, he, he ended up giving up his freedom and returning to temporary enslavement in order to stay with his wife. Mm-hmm. So I'm dealing with people, and there were a whole bunch of people who did that in Virginia because there was a law on the books 
anybody enslaved after, I mean, anybody freed after a certain period of time, I believe it was 1806, had to leave immediately or else they would be in, be re-enslaved. And a whole bunch of people uh, declared that if they had to leave their mates behind, they didn't want freedom. Okay, think about that for a moment. You know. Yeah. Yes, just just let that roll around in your head. They said the price was too high. If that was if that was how they had to do it, yeah, it was 1806. They had to leave within 12 months or return to enslavement, and and a uh, uh, large number of people said, well, that's what we have to do because we don't we don't want to give up our families. Uh, so. Now, they were up against a lot back then, the black laws, the black codes. Um, you also mentioned, uh, and I'm glad you did, about the golden oldies in terms of Black History Month, and you're getting to those blacks who were not very well known. I think it, it, William Still is another individual that's that's been pretty much ignored his story and how he used uh, letters and posters and the U.S. Postal Service, et cetera, and that was a Facebook and Twitter and Instagram of his day. Well, and and do you know the story of Peter Still, the brother, uh, the the brother from whom he brother. was separated at a young age? Yes. Okay. Well, Peter Still had a wife named Vina, and they made he made repeated attempts to gain her freedom. Let uh, me uh, let me interrupt one moment. That was Peter Get Still, right? Peter. Well, Still was was one of the names he was given as he was moved from owner to owner. Okay. Uh, yeah, G I S T was one of his one of his names at at, at one point. Uh, I was able to meet a direct descendant of 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 his uh, and, some, and some other real important people. The Stills have maintained their togetherness. Uh, even until this era, they have not just one family reunion, but several reunions uh, in a year. I went to Lawnside, Lawnside, New Jersey for one of the reunions. They had another one that same year in Philadelphia. So they have done a good job of of passing on their history of, of heroism uh, through the generations. I even saw a young member of the family wearing a T-shirt with the name on there and something, some inspirational saying. I mean, this is what I'm really hoping for, that that we can create more indigenous family heroes uh, for people to look up to. Uh, not, 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 not only people that, you know, that we think of as great and grand and on the pedestal, because sometimes we feel those people are so great we can't approach what they did. But if people can understand how many people were involved in this and how they were not renowned or famous or anything, they were just people who understood that all they really had was each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like that phrasing, indigenous family heroes. Yes. I can't agree with you more. Um, and that's probably what Black History Month should be about is finding and locating those indigenous things. Well, I'm glad you liked the word. I mean, that would be a wonderful project uh, for us to do all across the country if we want to do something 
different for February. Uh, finding, finding, find your own hero, your own personal hero. Exactly, and we're going to encourage our listeners to do that. And I want to remind our listeners that they're listening to the Kiss of Freedom. My guest is Betty Doremus, author. We're talking about her book, Forbidden Fruit, Love Stories from the Underground Railroad, in honor of Valentine's Day coming up. If you have a question or comment, you can call us at 347-324-5552. Yes, and I would like to tell you about my favorite story of all. Uh, We're eager to hear Okay, this was the tale of John and Eliza Little. Uh, They were in Tennessee. Uh, John had been beaten severely for leaving his farm in order to visit his mother, who was ill. And when he found out he was going to be beaten again before he had healed from the first beating, he and Eliza decided they were going to run away. Uh, But Eliza was not like John. He was a strong, stout man. She was a very delicate woman. She was sort of ill. She couldn't stand sunshine. Um, so they were, they, were, they were complete opposites. But John was, even though he knew that, or he must have felt that Eliza would have a lot of trouble surviving the journey, he couldn't imagine leaving without her. So he went to, he did something very extraordinary to, um, so that he could bring his weak, well, she was weak then, but she became strong. (laughs) Uh, I would like to read a little bit of that. I used to to read this piece at gatherings, but I wasn't able, I couldn't get through it without crying. But uh, at this point, I think I can. The chapter is called The Woman on John Little's Back. He carried his wife to freedom on his scarred and beaten back. That's real, y'all. You need to know about John Little. Among slaves, backs were storybooks telling a person's whole saga, recording where he had been and suggesting where he might go. I'm going to skip a little bit. Yet between them, a North Carolina-born slave named John Little and his Virginia-born wife, Eliza, might have had as many scars as Gordon, but they also had something else. Credible memory of an incredible day. John Little became a runaway after his master refused to give him a Sunday pass to visit his ailing mother. He went to see his mother anyway and returned to take his punishment, 500 stinging, cutting lashes across his back. I beg your pardon? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. You said 500 lashes. 500 stinging, thudding lashes across his back. After that, a slave breaker beat him steadily for three months, trying to snap his spirit, twist his will, but nothing worked. When he was sent to Norfolk to be shipped to New Orleans, Little ran back to North Carolina to his mother. Taken to Tennessee, he married a woman with soft hands a woman who couldn't stand too much sun, a woman as gentle as he was strong. But he was jailed again and about to be resold. That's when he broke out of jail. 
when his wife told him the overseer planned to whack him 300 times with a wooden paddle. He prepared to run away again, waiting in the woods until his ailing wife healed. Once the littles began walking, they journeyed nine miles before an exhausted Eliza Little collapsed on the floor of a barn. John Little kept trying to rouse her but couldn't. Benjamin Drew, a 19th century researcher, describes what John Little did next. Now here I'm quoting John Little's own words because he he spoke to this researcher uh, back in the 1860s. So I'm quoting him. I seized and shook her. Wife, wife, master is coming. But I could not awaken her. I gathered her up, put her across my shoulder manfully, jumped the fence, and ran with my burden about a quarter of a mile. My heart beat like a drum from the thought that they were pursuing us. That last gave out, and I laid her down under a fence. But she did not awaken. I'm going to skip again to another description of their trip as they continue. During Eliza and John Little's journey to freedom, Eliza's shoes gave out, and she wore out her husband's old shoes too. Barefoot, they stumbled on. When they crossed the Ohio bottoms leading to the river, John Little once again proved he was more than a man with a strong back. He told Benjamin Drew, and these are his words again, the water was black and deep. I bound our package on my wife's back, placed her on a log as a man rides on horseback, and I swam, pushing the log, holding it steady to keep her up. Had the log turned right or left, she would have slipped off, and the packs would have sunk her. It would have been death, sure, but worse than death was behind us, and to avoid that we risk our lives. From Jackson to the Ohio River was called 140 miles. We crossed into Black Hawk Territory. There I was so lost and bewildered that I had at last to go up to a house to inquire the way. I found there a man with true abolition principles who told us the route. He said a man and his wife had been carried back to slavery from that neighborhood. Then we walked on. My wife was completely worn out. It was three months from the time we left home before we slept in the house. We were in the woods, ignorant of the roads, and losing our way. Many such roundabout cruises we made, wearing ourselves out without advancing. This was what kept us so long in the wilderness and in suffering. I had suffered so much from white men that I had no confidence in them and determined to push myself through without their help. Yet I had to ask at last and met with a friend instead of an enemy. At Chicago, money was made up to help me on, and I took passage for Detroit and then crossed to Windsor in Canada. That was the first time I set my foot on free soil. Now, this last paragraph is is my own language, and this is the end of the story. After stopping off in Windsor, the Littles finally journeyed into the Canadian wilderness. They had nothing but two axes, one suit of clothes, an iron pot, a Dutch oven, a few plates and forks, 
some pork and flour. Around 1842, they marched into the snowy wilderness known as the Queen's Bush, a vast tract of land in the Huron area. Settlers moved there on their own, one family at a time. There were no roads, no markets, no mills to grind flour. The Littles built a house amid wolves and bears and raised wheat and potatoes. Eliza Little chopped wood right beside John, the man who had carried her on his back and paddled her across a river, impelled by love. Oh, boy, they survived. Uh, you know, I'm reminded that uh, we were talking about the Steele brothers. Uh, Peter's older brother, Levane, was uh, given a number, hundreds of lashes, because he would escape to go see his wife, Fanny, who was on another plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, died. well you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you wonder how people could even survive uh, being whipped uh, because it would tear it would tear the skin off. A person who had been beaten like John Little and like some other people, uh, they couldn't lay down. They had to they had to like sleep on their knees, and they would put this I guess bear grease or whatever on their backs to hold the skin together, and they would probably chain them or them in some way to, to something that would that would keep them in place, keep them from from lying on their back. Imagine that, and they couldn't bathe for about a month either, while the uh, their backs were healing. Healing, yes. You know, Valentine's Day and love stories also involve heartache. And are you familiar with Harriet Tubman's heartbreak? And I was wondering, is it true that she went back to get her husband, only he to find he was he remarried? Get, yeah, well, he wouldn't go with her when she when she ran away. And it's my understanding that uh, she was he had he had married, remarried um, after after she left. Um, but I'm not going to talk about Harriet Tubman. <laughs> okay. Well, your book also includes, as you open as we opened up here, interracial couples. Uh, you mentioned Isaac and Lucy. Um, what's been the response to uh, your book, Forbidden Fruit? Well, it's in my opinion, it's had a it's had a tremendous response, um, far more than I uh, expected at the time. Um, you never know when you say all these things uh, out there. Uh, it was on Essence Magazine's um, bestseller list for nine months, which uh, which was a pretty good response. Um, so, and it's a it's a it's the kind of thing that that I guess is always kind of is always fresh. Donna Britt wrote about it before she left the Washington Post. Are you Who familiar with Donna Britt? She used to be a columnist for the Washington Post. Okay. Are you familiar with Leonard Pitts? Yes. Okay, Leonard Pitts wrote an entire column about it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we got a response on Facebook as well. Um, to the show and to the title and to the book. Yeah. Very Well, another wonderful thing that has happened is, because I traveled all over the country um, researching this book, uh, a a lot of small towns. I tried to go 
to the places where people were either born or died. Because that's, if nobody else knows the story, those are the places where people will know the story. For instance, Samuel Balton, the guy I mentioned who, who ran away and joined the Army and then came back to check on his wife, uh, he died in Greenlawn, New York, which is in upstate New York. And when I went there, people were so excited because nobody nobody has written about, you know, him, uh, Samuel Balton. They even filmed, <laughs> when, when I came there to do research, they even filmed me in the historical society. So you end up becoming a part of a network when you do something like this. You mentioned Facebook. Um, I have a lot of Facebook friends who are descendants of people I wrote about. Uh, in fact, I quote descendants in there. Since the people can't speak for themselves, uh, whenever possible, I have someone in the family um, speaking for them. Uh, so you become a, you become a part of you become a part of a network of people who are concerned at conserving this kind of history and telling you know stories that, for the most part, have not been told. Uh, during your journeys and collecting this information, were you able to collect any memorabilia relative to the people you were writing about? Well, um, you mean, yeah, I collected memorabilia, not anything grand or not anything, you know, that I guess would go in a library, but uh, stories. Um, sometimes people would would start writing their stories and they wouldn't finish it, you know, Un- unpublished memoirs, family publications, uh, s- Civil War records, census data. This is all research mer- uh, material I'm talking about. Exactly. I'm, I'm not sure to... what kind of memorabilia you're talking about. Well, did you come across any of uh, Bibbs's paper, The Voice of the Fugitive? Well, they're in the library. They're in the library? Okay. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're in bound volumes. Uh, I don't. I don't have any any copies of them. I have two. I have six file cabinets full of papers. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, it, it's it's amazing how much stuff is out there. Uh, but it's mostly untapped sources or newspaper articles or, like I said, bits and pieces, census data, this and that. Uh, my best. So, go ahead. Across anything that uh, that you kept and you just had to have and share and show off uh, to your children or friends, anything you would consider a gem? Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. No, just 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 the solid, you know, kind of kind of research stuff that okay. you know, interviews with people. Uh, I would have loved to have been able to keep Samuel Balton's uh, Civil War sword, which was in the museum, but oh. <laughs> no one was going. No one was going to let that let that loose. I right. did have a tape of one of his grandchildren. Some I did get a copy of it. I don't have the original. You uh, mentioned Samuel. What was Samuel's last name? And tell us a little bit about Samuel. He was the owner of the Civil War. Sword, right? Yeah, Samuel yeah. Balton, B A L L T O N. Okay. And, and uh, he, at, it, his story.
story is amazing. Well, they all are. After he finally was able to rescue his wife uh, and take her to freedom, they, they migrated up to upstate New York. And Samuel Balton was a farmer for a while, and then he became a builder. This is a man who, as far as I know, had no formal education, but he became literate enough that he actually wrote a couple of letters to the editor uh, that I was able to to read, um, sort of encouraging other people to to do what he had done, you know. <laughs> and he okay. became he became a builder where he where he gained that skills. I don't know, but we were a very we were artisans. And we did build uh, much of this country, and so it, it sh- I shouldn't have been surprised that he had the skills to become a builder. He apparently built homes that were built that were bought by rich people, uh, and I think he put together a crew of former former enslaved people to work on these houses. When I got to Greenlawn, I discovered that four of the houses he built were still standing, and one of them was occupied by one of his descendants. <laughs> and well, they went... you know, he was from ancestors who built the pyramids, and one of the reasons we were stolen out of Africa is because of those skills yes, yes, that we had... ancestors possessed. Yes, we had all kinds of skills. Uh, we really created rice production uh, in this country. Oh, yeah. rice, tobacco. Uh, yeah, we number? were we we were the ones that that knew how to grow who knew how to grow rice. Who who else knew how to grow rice? Exactly. So uh, so yeah, okay. He uh, he had he had the ability. And okay, I'm sorry, uh, Daniel, but go ahead and continue with Mr. Bolton. I'm not hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry. I said I was sorry that I interrupted you. Well, that and that's okay. It's it's um, it all flows. Anyway, they brought his, I believe she was a granddaughter, over to the library, and she was in her 90s. A lot of these descendants were 80, 90, almost 100 years old. They were, they were you know, they were, they were still around. And uh, she just shared memories of the town the way it would have been, you know, when he, when he was living there. This was just a great adventure for me. I felt like I was on the Underground Railroad at at some points in time, because I was have I was traveling all kinds of ways. I, uh, sometimes I was in a I might be in a town that didn't have a name. It had a name, but it didn't have any sign. <laughs> so you so you'd know where you were. Exactly. So I wasn't as lost as uh, some of the people I've described here, but sometimes kind of close, <laughs> you know. And so I was. Oh, to research one story, I actually went into the Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which is uh, a very cold and very lightly populated uh, part of the state. It never has had much of a black population. But in 18, between 1850 and 1860, all of a sudden the population, the black population, jumped up there, and you had all these black people from the uh, Deep South suddenly... Uh, in, in a very unlikely part part of the country, mm-hmm. and it, it's been speculated by academics and whatever that uh, these were underground railroad travelers going to a place where they knew they would not be followed. Uh, uh-huh. And there were black fur fur traders uh, 
who were in the in those waters and who had boats and who would tran- who who could have you know transported people uh deep into the upper peninsula and so I visited the upper peninsula and in order to feel what those people would have felt because for a large part of the part of the, part of the year you would not even have been able to get around up there unless you were in a dog sled or on, you know, those shoes. Um, so I rode a dog sled <laughs> uh, up there, uh, just 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 to trans just to try to transport myself to their time and feel what they felt. Exactly. Um, we still have a little time left, but before uh, we get to the end. Uh, your two books, Forbidden Fruit, Love Stories from the Underground Railroad, and also Freedom by Any Means, True Stories of Cunning and Courage from the Underground Railroad. Where are these books available? How would our listeners get copies? And Well, they're available where every, everything is, else is available on Amazon. Okay. Dot com. Uh, uh. They they could be available if if there's a lo- if you have a local bookstore who who wants to order it. And your contact information. You mentioned you were on Facebook. Uh, if our listeners wanted to contact you there, would it be okay? And uh, 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 sure. If somebody wants to communicate with me, um, I am on Facebook. My first name is Betty B B is in boy E T T Y. Last name is D Ramus. That's capital D, small e, capital R as in Raymond, A-M-U-S. Okay. Uh, Do you have a website? uh, Yes. My website is www. And then my name in lowercase, Betty, B-E-T-T-Y-D-E-R-A-M-U-S, all one word. Dot com. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that one of your, or the most uh, favorite of the stories, uh, was John and Eliza. Yes, which I, uh, which I just read to you that moment when, he, when he's jumping over the fence with exactly. her on, on his back and then walking in a quarter of a mile. He had me right there. <laughs> uh, give us a couple more of your uh of your favorite uh, stories, uh, those about. well, there's a there's a Kentucky story, uh, a couple named Thornton and Ruth Blackburn. Um, they ran a gateway together from uh, Kentucky, and what I lo- re- really like about their story is that they did it in a totally different way. Uh, usually, you have people hiding and. Uh, going through the wilderness or running and whatever. John and Rutha escaped just on the basis of confidence. Uh, uh, Rutha was wearing a black satin dress and and, flaunt, and walking like she was a queen. And uh, John had a very dignified bearing and he was wearing his best clothes. And they just carried themselves in such a, you know, like royalty, that they were able to board a ship and actually be transported down the Ohio River, which was a crime 
to you know to transport anybody who was escaping enslavement, but everybody took them on face value. They just thought, well, this, you know, they didn't even give it a thought. Obviously, these must be free people, <laughs> and uh, and they were able to to make their way like that. They ended up coming to Detroit, where they stayed for two years before their whereabouts were discovered. And then the slave catchers showed up to take them back to Kentucky, and the town rose up and would not let them be taken back. They had meetings. They organized a plan where um, the two of them were in jail at this point, uh, Thornton and Rutha. And uh, a woman went to visit uh, Rutha, changed clothes with her, and uh, took her place in the cell. Meanwhile, uh, Rutha, who became Lucy once she was in uh, Canada, uh, meanwhile, Rutha was able to escape across the river to Canada. And when her jailers came the next morning to bring her out and turn her over to the slave catchers, they discovered there was a different woman in the cell. Uh, you know, the woman they wanted is gone. Then so some, the, woman that, the woman that took her place, was she charged with anything? Uh, no, because she, there, there was talk about sending her back to Kentucky and Ruth's place, but she was highly connected. She was connected to some important people. Okay. And, and so that and, and that kept that from happening. Meanwhile, they said, well, we still got the man, we still got Thornton, and uh, somebody had, Thornton played a trick on him. You know, because there was a bunch of people gathered here now. There, there were like hundreds of hundreds of black people had gathered. Some had even come over from Canada because people were very worked up about this. And uh, Thornton says, well, just, it's, it's no reason to have all this uproar over uh, over me. Just let me go out and talk to the people, and I'll get them calmed down. So Thornton goes out of the jail supposedly to calm down the people. Meanwhile, somebody slips him a gun, <laughs> and uh, and the mob knocks out the sheriff, and <laughs> and Thornton is put in a co- in a coach and driven to the river and then taken across. And I mean, it was all organized. It was all researched. Everybody had a role to play. And as I said, it was an enormous group involved. The city rose up and would not let that happen. And Thornton and Rutha did end up in Canada. They ended up in Toronto. Uh, Thornton became wealthy, but he 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 uh, remained in the movement. He donated uh, most of what he had to to helping, uh, you know, the anti-slavery movement. So they never forgot what what they came from, and they never forgot what was done in their behalf. Okay. Yeah. You know. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, and 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 even the people who were involved in the rescue, it changed their lives as well. Uh, and, and some some of them were responsible for establishing uh, Second Baptist Church here in Detroit, which still exists. I think it's the oldest black church uh, in Michigan. Uh, and then some of them left that church and established other churches. I mean. It, it was like the whole incident just had repercussions that went on and on and on, you know. Sounds uh, like it was a very energizing uh, experience. 
It was an energizing experience, and it was an experience which which actually created a community. There were black people there before, but after the Thornton and Ruth Blackburn incident, they were a black community. Yeah, you that know, was solidarity. Yeah, the, yeah, participating in that welded them together. Even the suffering that some people uh, underwent uh, changed the whole the whole uh, temperature of the community. Speaking of temperature, you talk about that cold place that you went to there in Michigan. Uh, what was the most difficult, or was that the most difficult story to research? Or did you have one more difficult than that? <laughs> well, that one that one was difficulty difficult because it took me out of my comfort zone. You know, I'm a city girl. What do I know about riding on a dog sled? <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, each one had its own kind of of challenge I, I guess you would say uh going to going to Greenlawn uh New York was kind of difficult cuz there's no there was no direct way to get there okay and, and i had to you know use three different kinds of transportation i was on a train a taxi a plane <laughs> and it's a hamlet so even after I got in the hamlet, then I had to get on the phone and call people uh, so that I could be directed to the actual museum or whatever. So they were all kind of challenging because I, I didn't, didn't always know exactly how to get from here to there. But I think I think that dog sled thing was certainly the most novel. Uh, yes. And also I would imagine that a lot of these stories uh, began with oral history, and uh, which one was most difficult to verify, to provide, or to find documentation? Well, yeah, that was that was that was really the most difficult aspect of it. Uh, first, first of all, I think oral history's gotten a bad name. Uh, a, a lot of truth is embedded in oral history and eventually shown or proven to be true. But it's very tricky because you don't want people to dismiss your work as being only oral history. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, each one was difficult. Joseph Antoine, the the man from Cuba who who uh, gave up his freedom to, to be, become a slave and stay with his wife. Uh, he he at one point was petitioning the court out in. Uh, Jefferson County, uh, Virginia, to uh, free him because after his his wife died, he uh, they tried to put him back back in, in enslavement again, and he he had papers to prove that he was actually a free man. Anyway, he petitioned the court, and I knew his letters existed somewhere in that particular courthouse. But every time I would call, I would get someone who didn't know what they were talking about, and for some reason. Uh, people won't just come out and say, I don't know. They'll tell you something doesn't exist. I don't, I don't know where that tendency comes from, but I encountered that a lot. But I just kept calling and acting as if I knew they were there, and one day I got somebody on the phone who, who knew what I was talking about. But I could have easily have given up. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So um, Isaac and Lucy Berry was kind of difficult until I found a marriage certificate for them in Canada. 
uh, Isaac was not in the Civil War, so he didn't have a pension file. But I finally got the bright idea of getting his his best friend's pension file. His best friend was also a runaway slave, and so he had a pension file. And in the file, he mentions that his friend and his friend's wife witnessed his marriage. Uh-huh. And, and okay. so that was that was click click like oh aha I got you. Yeah. So you had another difficulty with all these stories, of course, is that there was no concept, no fixed concept of how words were spelled <laughs> uh, in the 18th and 19th century. Even people themselves didn't necessarily know how their names were supposed to be spelled. And so you might have a person mis- you know, spelling his own name or her own name in three or four different ways. Can you imagine that? I can imagine that. Uh, I'm a genealogist here in Kansas City. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I about that spelling, uh, the various spelling on these names and whatnot. Well, let's see. So far you've given us two of your favorite stories. Let's have a third, and we'll probably call it quits then. And then, we'll call it, and then we'll call it quits. Yeah, we're out of time. Yeah, we're, we're almost, I think we're out of time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think they better allow me a couple more minutes. Well, one of the most unusual stories was sort of a story within a story. Uh, it's not the traditional love story. Uh, it was a story, it starts off as a story of a white woman who had promised her, this is in Kentucky, who had promised her dying father that she would free her slaves. Uh, and she fully intended to do that. She was a good Methodist. But her brothers didn't want her to do that because that's money walking out the door. And so uh-oh. they, you know. Uh, yeah, I said, uh-oh, because I was thinking about what's going on with the King family right now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> her brothers. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's okay. Nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And uh, so they actually tried to have her declared, they tried to have their sister declared mentally incompetent. Oh boy! They took her to court, and uh, but it didn't work because she, you know, carried herself very well. But she grew afraid, and it, it, of her own brothers, what they might do next. And so she and the slaves escaped together. <laughs> <laughs> they all, all right. got they all got in a wagon, and then they got a, a white minister to sit up front. Uh, as a facade or whatever, and they all took off from Kentucky, ended up uh, in Iowa. And uh, the love story had to do with people who were who who were a part of that caravan. You see, so it's like the two stories go, intersect; they go back and forth, and at the end they run together. Uh, so I, I really, you know, it's two different levels of of emotional connection going on. But I think that's the only story I've ever seen or ever read about uh, a white person running away with with their slaves. Wow. What's the chances of you getting uh, some of these stories uh, on the silver screen? Well, uh, a group that I won't mention by name because you never know what's going to happen with these things. Somebody has options uh, the right to put them on the silver screen. All right. You know, but uh, 
a lot of things are option and you know never never come to pass. But it sounds like, and I'll be picking this book up here uh, very soon. Uh, sounds like some good reading. And I definitely want my children and grandchildren to read these kind of stories as well. Well, it would be wonderful if they made a little skit out of uh, one of the stories and uh, acted it out uh, for Black History Month at the school or something. Ah, very good. Very good idea. Appreciate that. Um, Well, we are out of time now. And I want to remind our listeners that they've been listening to The Gift of Freedom. My name is Preston Washington. Uh, Our guest has been author... Betty Doremus, talking to us about her book, Forbidden Fruit, Love Stories from the Underground Railroad. Do you have any closing comments? Uh, well, I just want to say it's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you about this, and uh, I hope we can talk again. The pleasure's been all mine. I will be sending you a friend request via Facebook. I want to remind our listeners that Uh, This uh, program is archived on iTunes and will be available at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. If you'd like to get a hold of our producer, Leslie Gist, you can email her at leslie at thegistoffreedom.com. Again, my name is Preston Washington. I've been your host, and I want to say good night to everybody. Good night. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. Bye. As around the sun, the earth no seeds revolving, and the rosebuds know the bloom in early May. Just as hate knows love's the cure, you can rest your mind.
that truth into love. And maybe our children, grandchildren, and their great grandchildren.